I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Proverbs chapter 22, verse 3. Proverbs 22, 3, where we read, A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. The Jewish leaders at the time of Christ had foresight to discern when the weather patterns would be fair and looking to the sky and noting various distinctions in the weather patterns, they were able to discern whether or not the next day would be favorable or unfavorable. But the Lord Jesus said they were, though they were able to discern certain signs in the sky, they were altogether lacking discernment as to the judgment that would befall them should they reject him as their savior. How often do we ignore various warning signs that come to us through the scripture, through preaching, through godly advice and counsel, and carelessly walk into temptation and sin, suffering great pain and heartache because we did not take seriously signs as conspicuous as flashing red lights with danger written all over those lights. Perhaps we did not heed those warnings put before us because our curiosity was aroused and so we proceeded forward to see what danger was that the danger was all about. Or perhaps again because we only we thought we would play and flirt with particular sins and that we could stop it at that particular point believing that we were able to rescue ourselves before a complete fall into sin, or because perhaps we rebelliously just pushed our way headlong into those dangers, into those temptations and sins, ignoring the danger signs, believing we could avoid the tragic consequences that would follow. And regardless of the cause, Whenever we do not pay careful attention to God's flashing red lights and ringing bells at train tracks in our lives and rather ignore God's warning signs, we will sooner or later suffer serious ill effects when the consequences of those decisions level us like a speeding locomotive. From our text this Lord's Day in Proverbs 22.3, we shall consider the following two main points. First, the prudent man wisely flees from evil. Proverbs 22, verse 3a. And secondly, the simple man carelessly falls into evil. Proverbs 22, verse 3b. First of all, then, the prudent man wisely free, flees from evil. Look at the first part with me. First part of Proverbs 22, verse 3. A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself. The Hebrew word here for prudent may be used in a negative sense as when one is crafty 
or shrewd and uses his mind to devise all manner of wicked plans, according to Job 5.12. Or it may be used in a positive sense of one who is wise in applying knowledge to practical situations in life, as we see here in Proverbs 22.3. Those who are prudent have insight into decisions that confront them. They consider not only the right motive for decisions to be made, which is love for God. They consider not only the right standard to be used in making decisions, which is God's law. But also they consider the right end that should be sought in making decisions, which is the glory of God. Those who are prudent... Consider not only the short-term effects of their decisions, but the long-term effects as well. They look into the future. They foresee, as our text says, they foresee what, what could happen as a result of this decision or that decision. They look into the future, as it were, to see where their decisions may in fact lead them. They are not existentialists, living only in the present and making decisions only on the basis of how that decision will affect them presently, here and now. They are prudent because they foresee the good or the evil that is likely to come from decisions they are presently making. And accordingly, they hide themselves, our text says. They hide themselves from future evil by finding shelter in wise decisions presently made. Those who are prudent will therefore not make hasty and rash decisions. They will take the following steps to make wise decisions and avoid evil consequences down the road. First of all, some of those steps that they will take in making wise decisions rather than hasty and rash decisions. The first step is they will consider ever so carefully the revealed will of God from Holy Scripture. In Psalm 119, verse 97, we read, Oh, how love I thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Thou through thy commandments has made me wiser than mine enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients, because I keep thy precepts. I have refrained my feet from every evil way, that I might keep thy word. I have not departed from thy judgments, for thou hast taught me. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts I get understanding, and therefore I hate every false way. Remember, along with that, dear ones, that we have no warrant from God's word to seek his will in daily decisions that will affect our future lives if we are not seeking to do right now what we know God calls us to do with our lives. Jesus said in John 
chapter 7, verse 17, the following. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. If we have a question as to the doctrine, as to whether it's from man or whether the doctrine is from God, if we have a question as to any teaching, any decision that is before us, whether it's from God or from man, the Lord says that he will give us knowledge, he will give us understanding, but what he prefaces it with, the qualification is, if any man will do his will, not if any man desires to know God's will, but if any man will do his will, are you seeking by God's grace to do his will now? And if you are, then to pray that God gives you direction for present decisions that will affect your future. We can fall back upon a promise like this. But if we are basically disregarding the way that we are living presently, and thinking that we can still approach God and ask him for wisdom concerning decisions that are before us now. And that God will just freely give to us insight and understanding into how we should make decisions now that will affect our lives for years to come. The Lord does not grant us that kind of a promise. He may do so in his mercy. But the promise states if any man is willing to do his will. Second, the second step in making wise decisions. Those who are prudent will listen carefully to the godly advice and counsel of church officers, parents, and mature friends in the faith. We read in Proverbs 19.20, Hear counsel and receive instruction that thou mayest be wise in thy latter end. In thy latter days, in the future, that you may be wise. Listen to counsel now. In Proverbs 23, 9, we read, Speak not in the ears of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of thy words. Don't waste your time upon a fool who won't listen to you, who doesn't want the advice or counsel who basically will disregard it, who basically says, you know, I'm not interested. Don't waste your time, the Lord says, with a fool. That obviously means that, on the other hand, our duty is to spend time giving counsel to those who are wise and who will heed that counsel. It's generally not a good idea, I would submit, to take a poll of as many people as possible when making a decision, lest one become more confused than enlightened. Rather, it is wiser to select a few counselors who have the experience and maturity of Christian knowledge, faith, love for God, and spiritual warfare in the trenches to go and ask, what do you think about this decision? The third step, making wise decisions, those who are prudent will pray diligently that God's Spirit will grant them foresight in seeing where their decisions will likely lead them. We are encouraged 
in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Again with another promise. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. When we go praying that God grant us wisdom, let us have faith that he is the only one who can grant us wisdom and that as we trust him, he will grant us wisdom. It may not come just like that. It may take time, but he will grant us wisdom in his time concerning decisions that we need to make. I'm so thankful that we are not limited to our own short-sightedness, but may call upon the Lord to open our eyes to see whether we are sowing in righteousness or rather sowing in corruption, and therefore whether we will reap a crop of righteousness or whether we will reap a crop of corruption in the future. So many presently have the mindset, it would seem, that they're going to sow seed in making foolish decisions, sinful decisions, concerning the future, and then later on they'll pray for a crop failure once they begin to reap what they have sown. Dear ones, let us learn now the important lesson that the sad consequences of our foolish decisions usually do catch up with us. And when they do, it's not a pretty sight. Fourth, fourth step in making wise decisions. Those who are prudent will also consider who will likely benefit or be hurt by the decisions they are now making. For example, if you are faced with a temptation to sin and the warning signals are loud and clear that there is evil in the path ahead of you, you are then faced with a very important decision about the future and not simply a decision about the present. Will you jeopardize your welfare and the welfare of others in the future by the decisions you make now? Will you sacrifice your testimony for Jesus Christ in the future by the decisions you're making now? Will you see the evil but not flee from it? Will you flirt and play with the temptation like a small child that is caught up in playing with matches? If you do, if you do that, sooner or later, you will be burnt just like that child. However, God graciously grants to the prudent man the ability to weigh out the future consequences of his present decisions and to flee, to flee from even the appearance of evil, as we're commanded to do in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, to flee from the appearance of evil for his own sake, to flee from the appearance of evil for the sake of others and, most importantly, for the glory of the God who has created us, provided everything we need in this life and saved us. 
Consider for a moment from the pages of Scripture a prudent man and a prudent woman who saw evil in their paths and fled from it. Joseph had wickedly been sold into slavery by his brothers, you'll recall. His Egyptian master had placed him in charge of managing his whole household. However, the master's wife had evil designs for Joseph. Let us pick up the biblical account at that point in Genesis 39, verses 7 through 12. Genesis 39, verses 7 through 12. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph and she said, lie with me. But he refused. And he said unto his master's wife, behold, my master wadeth not what is with me in the house. And he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And it came to pass, as uh, she spake to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. And it came to pass... About this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business. And there was none of the men of the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and got him out. Here was a prudent young man. He not only saw the possible consequences to himself and others, if he made the wrong decision. But most importantly, he said, how can I do this great evil and sin against God? He recognized the consequences that it would have in regard to the offense committed against the living God. He saw the red flashing lights and rather than heading for them, he fled away from them. He ran in the opposite direction. But someone may ask, Did not Joseph suffer terrible consequences for fleeing from evil in that this woman lied about him? Uh, His master threw him into prison and there he was for a number of years. For a time, for a time, it is true, his prudent decision did cost him. And dear ones, we always have to count the cost for righteous, just decisions we make. Because there usually is a cost involved. Someone, somewhere, isn't going to like the righteous decisions we make. And so there usually is a cost associated with it. So we can count on that to be the case. It did cost Joseph for a time. But God turned it out for his welfare and for the welfare of his family and for the welfare of all of Egypt and even the nation surrounding him as Joseph was placed second in command in Egypt, exalted to that high place, and was the means by which God preserved many, many lives through 
a desperate famine. There was a decision to be made as the temptation was presented to Joseph. He saw the evil and fled. This he did. There was not in his own strength, of course, for the flesh is powerless against such temptations, as we have all found out. The flesh accomplishes nothing. He fled in the strength of God's spirit. He was able to flee in the moment that he did, dear ones, I would submit to you, because he was prepared for that moment. How did he prepare himself for that moment? Well, by his communion with Christ. By the time he spent knowing that in life we will face these types of temptations, all of us will, in one form or another, whether inwardly or outwardly. And he counted the cost, made the right decision, but he was prepared, armed by the Holy Spirit because of his communion with Christ. And he was able to flee in that situation at that point in time. He did not indulge himself with the temptation, deceiving himself into believing he could flee himself. He could run away whenever he desired. He realized that any response other than fleeing the evil that was in his path was to give the temptation uh, the temptation an occasion to overcome him and overwhelm him like a mighty wave. Dear ones, God would have us know with certainty that we who are Christians, and this is so important for you to realize as a child of God, that we who are Christians are not the slaves of sin and temptation. We are not bound to obey the temptations that come our way. Why is that the case? Why are we not bound? Why are we not enslaved now that we have come to Christ? Because Christ has overcome all of our enemies by his death and by his resurrection. God nailed our old man to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we were crucified with him. When Christ died, the power of sin was broken in the lives of those who trust in Christ alone for eternal salvation. Not absolutely broken in the sense that now in this present life we can live a perfect life. But it was broken so that it no longer has dominion over us so that we must heed the temptation of sin in our life. That we must follow it wherever it leads us. Now, by God's grace, because the old man was nailed to the cross, we can say by God's grace, no. And we can run the opposite direction. In Romans chapter 6. Verses 12 through 14, we read the following. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, 
and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. You see the reason? You're not under the covenant of works. The covenant of works provides no help. The covenant of works provides no strength to, to obey the law. It simply commands you, obey the law. We're not under the law, though, now. We're under grace. We're under the covenant of grace, whereby we have all the power available to us. That power that raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead is available to us. If we will fall upon Christ and his power in our need, if we'll prepare ourselves every day before going out into the world or those places of temptation, that we will prepare ourselves by way of our communion with Christ so we do not unnecessarily place ourselves in those occasions of temptation. Furthermore, dear ones, there is an endless supply of grace for God to forgive us. An endless supply of grace to grant us a repentant heart. An endless supply of grace to cause us to hate evil and to love righteousness. An endless supply of grace to lead us into new obedience, having fallen, to rise up again by God's grace and to persevere in obeying the Lord. And an endless supply of grace on God's part to make something beautiful in our lives, even though we were very foolish in not listening to the many warning signs that God did give to us. There is hope in Jesus Christ. We cannot remain in the dust. Yes, God may discipline us as his children very severely for the sinful and foolish decisions that we make. But he does, he does so because he loves us, not because he hates us. He does so that we might learn by experience that when we touch a hot stove, after being warned time and time again that we will feel the effects of that heat, that we might avoid that hot stove and not touch it and not get burnt. A second example is of a godly woman who was prudent. We mentioned Joseph. Here is Hannah. Hannah is an example of a prudent woman who fled the evil before her in 1 Samuel chapter 1. The Lord had closed her womb and not giving her children. And her husband's second wife, Peninnah, who had children, did not cease to make Hannah's life absolutely miserable for her by constant taunting and teasing. Hannah could have lashed out against her adversary. She couldn't go really too far because her adversary was within her household. It's not like you could go and get away from that altogether. But she saw the evil in her path. And she rather fled to the Lord in prayer and committed the whole matter to God rather than following in that evil path. The Lord heard her cry and blessed her with children. Hannah was confronted with a decision at that point. Would she vent her anger and lash out against her rival who took delight in tormenting her? 
Or would she flee the temptation by fleeing to the Lord, her God, who would sustain her and help her? And she saw the evil, and she ran from it, rather than to it. She ran from it. Dear ones, you are tempted many times throughout the week to likewise vent your anger due to pressure that seems to squeeze the very life out of you. Or due to the taunting and teasing of others. Or just waiting for you to blow your fuse. Or due to some sin of your own in your life which you are wrestling with or justifying or excusing. Or due to some extreme pressures in your marriage or extreme pressures in your job. Or extreme pressures in making financial ends meet. Or due to the loss of someone very near and dear to you, you may be tempted to vent your anger. You may be tempted to just let somebody have it. There's the decision. There's the occasion. What will you do? What will be the consequences of seeing, foreseeing, the evil down the road if you vent that anger? What will be the consequences? What will you do? What decision will you make? Will you run to that anger and simply vent it? Or will you run away from it? Knowing the evil of anger and rage and violence, a harsh response or a vengeful spirit in responding to others, first of all, will not get you what you really want anyway. Secondly, and most of the time, it only makes the situation much worse. And finally, if you pursue that path, you you will be swallowed up and you will be consumed by it until it devastates you and robs you of your communion with Christ, a peace that passes all understanding, a contentment in every circumstance of life, the joy of the Lord, it will rob you of that communion with your family and your friends. It will rob you of all of the graces that you desire to have in your life as a Christian. If you are consumed with anger and bitterness and resentment, with harsh response, with a vengeful spirit, it will consume you and eat you up alive. As Christians, dear ones, we are set free from having to make such foolish and sinful decisions. But we are not free from the consequences of those foolish decisions that we make. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that will he also reap. We read in Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. That applies to Christians as well. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that will he also reap. There are consequences as Christians to our decisions we make. Dear ones, to be forewarned, to be forewarned about the danger that's ahead is to be forearmed. It's to have an opportunity to prepare yourself before you even get there in meeting those temptations. To prepare ourselves at the very outset of the day, by way of spending time with God in prayer, closing the day, spending time with God in prayer and reading his word, as we meet these temptations, is the way in which we will overcome them. But if we simply ignore the means of grace and we just plow ahead, and we simply face whatever, by God's providence, comes into our life that day, don't be surprised if you don't do very well. Uh, On the other hand, 
if we do take all the appropriate steps to prepare ourselves, it is far more likely that we will handle those temptations in a way that's honoring to God that will benefit ourselves and others. Don't be like the drunkard who is going to battle with a sin by frequenting the bar and when he begins to fall into the sin of drinking excessively, cries out, save me from this temptation. This is simply tempting God to save us after we have foolishly thrown ourselves into the past into the path of the racing locomotive. Certainly, if temptation ambushes us, we must fight it to the death. But when we see the temptation from a distance and can avoid it by fleeing, how much more prudent to do that. Let us therefore follow the examples of Joseph and Hannah and fleeing the evil temptations that daily confront us, and rather, let us flee to Christ, who alone can rescue us. Let us not only, dear ones, hate and despise sin, but also let us despise the very temptation to sin. You know, every day we should be praying this portion of the Lord's Prayer, or something like it, and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Do you hate not only sin, but do you hate to be tempted with sin? Do you despise the temptations that are presented to you? That's where we should be. We should be growing to where we not only hate the actual sin, but the temptation, the desire for that sin that presents itself to us. For if we enjoy the temptations offered by sin, and try to get as close to the edge of the canyon as possible without falling in. It's just a matter of time before we will fall to our pain and heartache for not heeding the many warning signs that were along the road leading up to that edge of the cliff. The second main point from our text is this. The simple man carelessly falls into evil. In Proverbs 22, verse 3, and the latter part of that verse says this, But the simple pass on and are punished. Let me read the whole verse so as to read it in context. A prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on and are punished. The Hebrew word for simple comes from a verb which means to be open, spacious, and wide. For the simple person is wide open, if you will, to various kinds of enticements and seductions to sin. The simple man does not have the grace of discernment and prudence in properly evaluating what the consequences of his or her decision will likely be as it relates to the glory of God and the good and the welfare of oneself and others. Our text simply describes him as a person who sees the evil, but despite all the warning signs, despite all the uh, flashing red lights, Despite all the whistles that are going off, his lust 
or her lust, his curiosity or her curiosity, his passion or her passion, his or her selfishness, drive them to walk that path anyway to his or her own hurt and at times to his or her own destruction. Here is one whom the world describes as broad-minded because that's what the word, word means, to be open, spacious, wide. Here's, a, here's the worldly broad-minded man or woman because he or she is willing to entertain whatever is presented to him or her in doctrine or life. His own insecurity continually drives him to try this or to try that. He is gullible and open to the suggestions and temptations of sin because he does not have a firm foundation in God's word. As you have heard through the sermon, I have perhaps used the masculine pronoun he or him to a large extent in this last section is trying to interchange and to use not only he, but she, not only him, but her. That's just to emphasize the fact that this isn't simply directed to men, but this is directed to women as well. That's probably obvious, but nevertheless, I think it's worth stating for all of our benefits. Question arises because the simple man is so-called broad-minded, He's open-minded. Are Christians narrow-minded? In the right sense, absolutely. Christians are narrow-minded in the right sense. We are not narrow-minded in the sense that we are uninformed about the world around us. However, we are narrow-minded in a good sense because we believe that there is only one way to God. Not many ways to God. We believe, and we are called narrow-minded, and I would say we're narrow-minded in a good sense, because we believe God's truth is absolute and not relative. Not relative to every person's specific circumstances and situations. We're narrow-minded in a good sense because we believe there is only one who can give us everlasting life. Not many who can do so. Only one. And Jesus Christ alone is the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but through him. The Lord Jesus also told us, if you recall, in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, that broad is the way that leads to destruction. In that sense, it's certainly not good to be broad-minded. If broad, being broad-minded is going to lead you to destruction, then God keep us from being broad-minded in that sense. But being narrow-minded in the sense that I've just laid out for you is the way that leads to everlasting life. But Jesus says there are few, there are few who find that narrow way, that narrow path through Christ alone, in comparison to all of the many who walk the broad path to everlasting destruction. Dear ones, we need never apologize for the narrowness of our Christian faith, for the narrowness of our Christian <coughs> convictions, because we are not going to be any more narrow than what God's word teaches.
It is, dear ones, the broad-mindedness of the world, which according to God is really a simple-mindedness that leads one to fall prey to every deceitful lie and cunning temptation. I speak to everyone within the sound of my voice today, but I do especially want to call the children, the young people, the young adults to hear what I say. Save yourselves from a world and possibly an eternity of misery and heartache by not being worldly minded, open minded or broad minded to whatever suggestions the world may bring your way, whether in music, whether in fashions, drugs, sex, philosophy, science or religious ideas. There are some of us present today, children, young people, there are some of us present today who could tell you what severe consequences have followed from our own foolish decisions which we have made. And I think if we were to put together a list of that nature, it would, we would pray, have quite the effect We don't want to parade our sins before others. We don't want to make ourselves, you know, sensational about what God saved us from, sensationalize our testimony. But there is a time to go to those who are following the paths of unrighteousness and wickedness, who are considering things that are contrary to God's doctrine, worship, church government, It is important that we do share with them at such times, if we can, what we have experienced and to pray that God would use even that to preserve them from walking the same way. Much of the Bible is filled with exactly that, telling the experiences of where God's people fell into deep, sordid sin so as to show us how to avoid that same path but also to show to us the mercy of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, who forgives even fallen sinners. Children, young people, don't think that because we are older, we cannot understand what you are going through. Listen and learn, receive instruction, and live. Invite the counsel of those who have learned even the hard way. Learn from our errors. Learn from our sins. Learn from our mistakes, not to walk the same paths that we have walked. I leave the example of one biblical individual with you today whose example, in this particular instance, we should not follow. For he flirted and played with temptation and sin rather than fleeing from it, like Joseph. Samson was a man supernaturally empowered by God to do amazing feats of strength. He was a judge of Israel. He was a godly man. He is even mentioned in Hebrews 11.32 as 
one of those men to whom we can look as being in the hall of fame of faith, who trusted God. But he had a weakness. And he fell into that particular weakness. This is a man who killed a thousand Philistines with the mere jawbone of a donkey. He carried off the gates of a city on his back and up a mountain and placed them and left them on the top of a mountain. He killed a lion with his bare hands all by the power of God. He broke thick ropes in which he was uh, uh, held captive. He broke them as if they were wet spaghetti. But despite his supernatural physical strength, he was very weak and simple when it came to one area of his life, when it came to the temptations of women. He was indeed a man of faith who trusted God, but he fell into serious sin. You'll remember how Delilah, a harlot, was bribed by the Philistines to find out the secret of Samson's strength. She pled with Samson. She flirted with Samson. She entertained Samson. She was relentless in soliciting Samson to tell her the source of his strength. And Samson, rather than fleeing temptation like Joseph, Samson flirted and played with it until he finally gave in to it and was humiliated before God's enemies, humiliated before God's people, humiliated before God himself. Yes, the Lord graciously granted Samson repentance, but he died a sudden death with the Philistines as the building came crashing upon him and upon all his enemies. Samson flirted with temptation and suffered the consequences of his sin. He didn't heed the warning signs. He didn't heed the flashing red lights. He didn't heed the sound of the locomotive that was coming down the, down the train track. But it proceeded across and upon that train track and suffered the consequences. In the past 24 years of my pastoral ministry, I have counseled many who deeply regretted foolish decisions they made in the past. Many of these decisions had very, very serious consequences in their lives. Imprisonment, children born out of wedlock, the dreaded disease of AIDS, divorce, loss of family and friends, loss of credibility due to lying, loss of health, and on and on go the consequences. How they would love to have it to do over again so as to avoid the suffering, the pain, and the misery of those foolish decisions and sinful decisions. Although they could not relive their past all over again, I could yet, thanks be to God, I could yet give to them a certain hope that Christ was able to take those foolish decisions those sinful decisions and use them for their good if they would sorrow and grieve 
over the offense of their sin against God and others and not simply sorrow over the consequences of their sins. If they would look in faith to the mercy of God and the free forgiveness of God, Jesus Christ, and if they would resolve before God anew to walk faithfully in his commandments by his grace. For if the Lord would forgive and use David after he repented of having committed adultery, having become an accomplice in murder, and having deceived others about his sin for approximately nine months, he will do the same for you. In fact, David says in Psalm 51.13, in his psalm of confession, when he's restored, as he's restored, I will teach transgressors thy ways. If the Lord would forgive and use Solomon after he repented of having taken hundreds of wives and concubines, which were in fact adulterous relationships, because he should have only had one wife, and having followed those wives even into further sin and serving their false gods, he will do the same for you. If the Lord would forgive and use Peter after he repented of having denied even knowing the Lord three times, he will do the same for you. There is forgiveness and life in Christ even after much regret and shame and humiliation. There will be mourning for sin, grieving for sin, sorrowing for sin, the sin committed against God and others in the life of a Christian. But Christ promises, Christ promises the comfort of his forgiveness. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And the Lord promises to make all things beautiful in his own time. All things beautiful in his own time. Even the way that we have foolishly destroyed, it would seem, ruined, it would seem, our lives. He's able to take that ugly mess and make something beautiful out of it. That's how great, that's how mighty, that's how gracious our God is. If we will fall upon him, if we will serve him, if we will repent, and if we will seek his forgiveness, the Lord is able to use all of that for his glory and for our own good. Let us stand together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank Thee and praise Thee for Thy tender mercies to us. We thank Thee, our God, that Thou hast taught us to look, not simply make decisions upon what we think and feel right now, but to look, as a prudent man does, into the future. Lord, we first and foremost ought to do so because we do not want to offend thee because we love thee but oh Lord it is also a valid and good reason to look at the consequences of our decisions down the road and to run from 
to flee from sin on the basis of that as well. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray that Thou would forgive us of our sins, that Thou would make us men and women of God who are transparent before Thee, who are honest, who are truthful with Thee and with one another. We ask our Lord and our God that Thou would raise up from what appear to be the ashes of our life what appear to be the, the corpse of our life, the dry bones of our life, and put flesh and sinew upon those dry bones of our life and make them, O oh God, those dry bones to live again to thy glory, to thine honor, to thy praise. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.